From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll look at the environmental impact road salt has on our local waterways. Then, we'll learn about the racial disparities in accessing spaces like beaches and pools. Environmental justice is not just what it sounds like. It's not just, let's create more parks and beaches and let's get people outside and moving and exercise. It's not just that. It's it's housing justice. It's social justice. It's racial justice. We'll get an inside look at Flight for Life and learn how their operation ensures they're always on standby to save a life. That's where the aircraft really kind of shines, is where we can come in, get that patient, get them moving to that higher level care center, and, and provide that, that patient with, with a, a better outcome. Plus, get some ice safety tips. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us today. We'll start with the snowy, cold week we've had here in southeast Wisconsin. It's meant the Department of Public Works has been busy plowing and de-icing roads, often using road salt. While clear and safe roads are obviously critical during a winter storm, there is an environmental impact of all the salt that gets scattered on our roadways and sidewalks, especially in our local waterways. WUWM's environmental reporter Susan Bentz spoke with Cheryl Nen of Milwaukee Riverkeeper about that impact and what we can all do to try to minimize it. Most of our storm drains outside of the real core of downtown Milwaukee and the southern part of Shorewood, um, a lot of the runoff from the roads goes directly to the river system. Um, In the downtown Milwaukee area, that's the combined sewer area, quite a lot of that runoff in some of the downtown streets does run to the sewage treatment plant. You know, the sewage treatment plant was designed obviously to treat human waste, but it can remove some extent of other pollutants, solids, things like that, some bacteria. But, you know, there's a lot of the, the salt is dissolved, and so that would go through the treatment plant and then be essentially discharged back to the lake. So for rivers, lakes, well, let's just talk rivers because yeah. here we are. Yeah. What becomes of, of runoff that it contains chloride that ends out in the river? Yeah, so a lot of the runoff goes into the river um, and ha- with the road salt. And a lot of that stays in the river system, and um, quite a lot of it will settle out into the bottom of the river. And unfortunately, we know that that salt is now um, persisting. Riverkeeper has been monitoring for chloride since 2010. We are starting to see some concerning trends. One is uh, we are you know, finding a lot of problems now in summer months. What that means, it's multiple things potentially, but I think in some cases, the salt that's getting into the rivers and many lakes is persisting there. Um, and causing pollution. And in the summer months, this year would be a good example, um, you know, we didn't have um, as much rainfall. So uh, a lot of the rivers got very, very low this summer. And so that salt that's sitting on the bottom of the river becomes more concentrated. Those, the concentrations of chloride increase. Um, and we have seen a few um, pretty high spikes in summer months, which is something that we hadn't historically really seen. Um, and I think, you know, if you look over long-term trends, The salt levels are generally increasing in a lot of the urban waterways in particular. Some of our more rural waterways, we've been doing a lot of monitoring up there too, and we do have a couple exceedances in what I would consider more rural or suburban streams, but most of them are, you know, really focused around the urban core where we have a lot of roads. We have a lot of runoff from highways as well, from I-94, from I-43, from I-41 and 45, you know, all of those big interstates um, that are so snow free and instantly, (laughs) it seems like they do a great job. 
um, you know, de-icing quickly so that we all can get where we need to go. But all of that salt is running off and a lot of it is running off into the water. What does it mean to fish, to aquatic life, to human life? Right. Well, it is very toxic for fish and aquatic life. And when we do monitoring, we look at two different levels of chloride. One we call chronic and one we call acute. But basically, an acute exceedance is one that where the, the chloride levels are so high that we think it could be, um, you know, instantly toxic to fish and aquatic life. You know, they could potentially die. We also look at lower levels of salt that we is considered more of a chronic toxicity, which is, you know, over a th like a four-day period, for example, of, you know, slightly lower but still elevated levels. With those types of scenarios, it still could be very harmful to fish and aquatic life, could cause a lot of stress to organisms, affect their, you know, their functioning, their ability to reproduce and survive. So there's huge aquatic impacts from the road salt. From our perspective, you know, we're also in a lot of the salt that's draining our homes and our businesses and our roads is also, you know, going into Lake Michigan eventually from a lot of these tributary rivers like the Milwaukee um, and the Menominee and the Kinnikinnick. And, you know, that's our drinking water supply. And there are a lot of folks that do a lot more research on the lake and have been seeing some noticeable increases in salt levels in the lake as well. And so, you know, I think reducing salt, um, really minimizing the amount that we're using um, as residents can really help protect our water supply as well. Salt also is really harmful to, um, you know, a lot of plantings. A lot of different plants can be affected through salt burn, right, through when we're using a lot of salt this time of year. And it can harm pets, so paws of dogs, other animals. Um, that they can become, their paws can become really dried out and cracked due to the salt. And I think also there's a real damage to property. So I think people can probably notice that on their own property, can damage like that bottom of your garage door that starts rotting out, right? Which I might be, have at my house. And I really don't use salt, but uh, at all, if I can, if I can uh, get away with it. But, you know, it can damage a lot of uh, metal, it damages a lot of infrastructure that are, you know, city, bridges. county and state bridges. Um, especially metal bridges, but also can, you know, really corrode other building materials like concrete and other uh, surfaces out there. So I think there's been a trend in recent years of some municipalities moving away from salt, road yes. salt. Where, where does mm. that stand or has, it, has that had mixed reviews in terms of, as you said, we're used to having our roads cleared, Yeah, right? cleared we wanna, and we ready. We want to move. Yeah. yeah, it's true. I'm not really sure if there's more recent data, but I know at one point when we really looked into this, I think uh, Milwaukee County was using kind of eight times the salt um, per, rain, per lane mile than many other counties. So, I mean, there is, a, there is one element of we have a lot more roads, and so that might be why a lot of our urban rivers are struggling more with the, with the salt pollution. But we also know we're just supplying a lot more than other counties per mile. And part of that is the expectation that our roads and surfaces need to be instantly cleared. Uh, I know um, some years back there was some change in policy where I know the city of Milwaukee kind of tried to just really minimize salting on side streets and really just focus on the main arterial roads. And um, there was a lot of pushback from people about that. But, you know, I know like living where I live, I'm within, you know, several blocks in all directions of a main arterial. So um, I could drive a little bit slower on my side street until I got to the main street, like one block down or two blocks down. But there, you know, that really requires a lot of education and outreach because people really, really do expect, you know, all of our roads to be instantly, you know, plowed or plowed within a couple hours of a big storm. Um, and so part of that's, you know, uh, education as far as expectations of all of us and that that needs to change. Um, there are some cities really reducing their salt. Um, I know uh, some cities are really focusing on doing kind of intersections and streets that have slope, but really trying to minimize application in other places. 
So, you know, I think a lot of cities have over the last couple of years switched to kind of wet applications of salt and often and basically brine. And, and a lot of people have noticed that because you'll see like those lines on the road as opposed to the granular salt. So a lot of times that happens before a storm and it really is kind of like greasing your frying pan. It's trying to stop this, the snow and ice from adhering to the road. Um, also, so it's a lot easier for the trucks to blade up. Um, and so by using the brine systems, it can actually dramatically reduce the overall salt that a city uses because they need much less to make the brine. And by going out and kind of pre-applying it, it can minimize, make it much easier for the, the trucks to take it off. So they don't need to use as much granular product, you know, for like kind of problem areas. Right. A lot of cities have dramatically reduced their salt. I think Cudahy is, you know, reduced like really significant amount. Mm -hmm. And that also is like a huge cost saving for a municipality because some of these municipalities, um, they spend, you know, an incredible amount of money on road salt every year. And you have to kind of buy it whether you use it or not, mm -hmm. um, the way that a lot of the contracts are put out there. So, you know, they can save a lot of money by, by just using, you know, trying to use the right product at the right time and the right quantity. I think one of the things that's a little bit tricky is, um, you know, like road salt, like sodium chloride, which a lot of us use, road, you know, rock salt, a lot of those products don't really work when it's colder than 15 degrees. And so that's just something for people to know. Like, I think you see sometimes when it gets really cold, people apply more salt thinking like it's gonna do something, but applying more salt, more of the wrong product is not going to help, um, you know, melt your ice or, or um, you know, minimize ice creation. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of cities are switching to alternative types of pro products. There's like calcium chlorides, magnesium chlorides, different products that work in colder temperatures, but they're all still chloride based. And so from a water quality perspective, um, there's still a concern there. And then we're recently finding out that things like magnesium, they still have the same toxic water quality impact. I think a lot of this is gonna come down to, you know, just changing our expectations of how much of this product, you know, needs to be applied. If you go up north, for example, I think a lot of us go to different parts of the state or different parts of the country. You know, there are places that they're not, um, they don't use salt at all. They're just using sand for traction. People are driving on snow compacted roads. You have to drive a lot slower and maybe that's not practical for everywhere. But I think there certainly are like, you know, kind of small steps that we can take to reduce the salt usage, even in cities like Milwaukee and then and kind of the urban uh, suburban core around us and you know I think we all need to do better I think you know using only the salt that you absolutely absolutely need to um, we often tell people that you can use like a coffee cup of salt um, and that should be good enough for your a driveway if you have like a typical urban like 20 foot long you know Milwaukee driveway or about 10 you can also use about uh, one coffee cup of salt for about 10 sidewalk squares and that's really enough product you should be able to see a lot of space in between them you know if you're seeing after a storm like lots of salt remaining and big streaks of salt which we see sometimes on parking lots around town then you've put way too much product out we do want everybody to be safe we don't want to create you know a icy unsafe conditions and so if you have problem drainage areas porches or something where you you might have some persistent gutter issues you probably need to fix the gutter issue right and that's stuff we always forget about until now but in the summer you know really think about what's happening with the drainage of the house do you have gutters you need to fix can you direct water away from paved surfaces those are all just good practices um, and so I think a lot of this too could just be common sense but I think everybody has a role to play in, in minimizing the salt and that will help protect the river and the lake and our drinking water supply and so I think it would be really wonderful if everybody could do something and just really be a little bit more mindful. Um, and it also save, will save you quite a lot of money. 
Cheryl Nunn is the Milwaukee Riverkeeper's Riverkeeper. She spoke with WUWM environmental reporter Susan Bentz. Next week is Winter Salt Awareness Week, and there will be daily live streams discussing ways to mitigate the environmental impact of road salt. You can find more information about those sessions at wuwm.com. People of color have historically been excluded from enjoying spaces like pools and beaches. A recent article sheds light on the enduring issue of racial disparities in accessing these spaces. The article takes a look at the historical exclusion and environmental justice challenges that people of color, but especially black communities, have faced when it comes to water. To learn more, Lake Effect's expert Nunez speaks with Sarah Martinez, the author of the article and former water policy specialist at UW-Milwaukee. Your research sheds light on the enduring issue of racial disparities in accessing blue spaces, such as beaches, lakes, and pools. What inspired or encouraged you to write about this particular issue, and more specifically, blue spaces? Growing up, I grew up on the Gulf Coast of Texas. I grew up in Houston, and I noticed from a really young age, there just weren't very many people of color around And that's been an observation that's been left unchanged as I sort of grew up. And my parents were not super wealthy. And so we bought a cheap state parks pass and started visiting state parks. And I just kept noticing over time that there weren't many people of color engaging in the outdoors and enjoying outdoor recreation. And so when I came to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and got to enjoy the Great Lakes region and fall in love with Lake Michigan. I observed the same thing I'd seen over time is that there just weren't very many people of color being able to enjoy the space the same way that others were. So in addition to that, I've also just had a soft spot for water my entire life. I'm definitely one of those people that's very sensitive to the calming effect of being near water. So being in Milwaukee, living on Lake Michigan, having this observance And seeing it through my childhood into adulthood, I just felt that I was in a really unique position to look further into that issue and see if there was anything to it. And as a water policy specialist, I was given the privilege to run with that research. And the culmination of all of that was the article Racism in the Water. You kind of touched on this earlier where you mentioned, you know, the water has this calming effect for you personally. But for people who aren't familiar with blue spaces, what are some of the benefits of having equitable access to blue spaces like beaches and pools? The benefits of blue space are pretty vast. And there's several social and well-being benefits that are documented. They provide things like the alleviation of certain mental illnesses like anxiety and depression. That sort of calming effect is documented physiologically in the human body. Additionally, I think blue spaces provide opportunity for sports and for engagement with other people. And that in turn grows crucial characteristics in in people like self-esteem and leadership. There are also economic benefits around blue spaces. And that's, that's not a new thing that's been around, but I don't think it's as widely talked about. And I think that that's another really important piece of the conversation, especially for people with maybe less pro-environmental attitudes. 
I think that that's a larger bargaining chip that can help drive development moving forward. So there's actually lots of studies out there demonstrating that investment in green and blue infrastructure yields really big financial returns. So things like, you know, parks, parks with water features, uh, access to natural blue spaces like lakes and oceans. So river walks, um, lake fronts, things like that. Um, you know, for instance, there's an $80 million investment to create the Detroit Riverwalk returned over a billion dollars in the first 10 years and provided improved public access to enjoy the Detroit River with a large paved path for walking, biking, running, and just enjoying the river's beauty. Something else that you explore in your article is the really the history of racialization of blue spaces. And so regarding this country... Maybe this is a big question, but how far back does it go? And what are some examples of how spaces became racialized? I think it's a very deep question. And in the United States, with a focus on the United States, I think it can go back probably as far as the, you know, quote unquote, discovery of North America. Um But as far as this country goes, and my research focusing on the Black experience, that goes as far back as slavery. That goes as far back as indenturing people in West Africa and destroying their connection, their natural connection with water. It's a daunting thought to imagine being a slave on a slave ship and crossing the Atlantic Ocean and watching people, you know, sick, sick people being thrown overboard and poisoning your relationship with the water and then coming to the United States as a, as a slave and not as a free person and being forced to work the land without enjoying the land. I think that that soured a lot of, of relation with the land for many, especially black, but many uh, people of color. What are some of the long-term effects of this historical struggle to access blue spaces that you found through your research? I know something that you mentioned was uh, restrictive land use and housing policies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, That's probably the the biggest, most comprehensive way that this country has continued to divide um, people of color from white people. There's a lot of federal and state-sponsored racism. There was, and I, I would argue that there is still today, back you know, in the 1950s, it was racially restrictive covenants and redlining and exclusionary zoning. Covenants being you can't lease or rent or sell property to anyone other than people of the Caucasian race, which did not include Black people, did not include Brown people, Hispanic people, Indian people. It didn't, you know, didn't include any of us. Redlining, you know, was the practice of denying an otherwise creditworthy applicant alone for a home in a certain neighborhood because of their race. So if your neighborhood's mostly white at that time, they they would say, no, you can't have this home loan to buy that house. You can have a home loan to buy a house over here. And the house in this other neighborhood likely had, was closer to industrial uses, was closer to commercial zoning, and did not have the same recreational green blue space amenities that white neighborhoods would have. So the lasting impact of slavery and the culture of exclusion and racism that's been around for hundreds of years has had this lasting impact now where you see people of color in less well-invested neighborhoods further away from natural amenities. 
So in your article, you look at some tools that can help remedy these problems. And something that stood out to me is that you noted the public trust doctrine is one of the most successful legal tools to help preserve and expand public access to beaches. Can you tell me more about the doctrine and how it can do that? Sure. So the public trust doctrine is the body of law that directs states to hold navigable waters in trust for shared use by the public. So generally speaking, you know, those states whose public trust doctrines are extensive most recognize beach access as a recreational use that's protected. So in Wisconsin, for instance, beach access is a protected use. So theoretically, a person, an agency, a community could sue on that ground to protect their access if it was being infringed upon, if they felt that they were being discriminated against in accessing that. It's a public resource there for everyone, regardless of race, to enjoy the same way. So on a state-to-state basis, the public trust doctrine is different in every state. Every state protects different things. But in Wisconsin, Wisconsin's been great in terms of improving and expanding that body of law. But on a national level, its efficacy is just, it's just unproven because it varies so drastically state to state. Um, Can you kind of touch on how Wisconsin stands as a successful example regarding the doctrine? In the state of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources actually regulates and enforces the public trust doctrine. In state of Wisconsin versus the town of Lynn, there is a village of Williams Bay in the town of Lynn. They're adjacent to Lake Geneva. They enacted parking ordinances that restricted parking at a public boat launch, right? And in this case, the state actually recognized access rights, accessing Lake Geneva as ancillary, as adjacent to the public trust doctrine. So the Wisconsin Court of Appeals actually says the WDNR, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, is completely within the bounds of the doctrine to regulate the adequacy of public access to state trusted waters because access is important to the enjoyment of all water bodies in the state. So Wisconsin has really taken a lead and used the public trust doctrine as a, as a legal tool to preserve and expand access. And it might not be in the way that sounds important, but these are important cases that can be used in the future to improve access to Lake Michigan for dominantly Black and Hispanic communities and people of color. So Wisconsin has been a really integral state in terms of building out the public trust doctrine and looking at it in a way that other states will hopefully will take note. And what I take away from your article is this inequitable access to blue spaces is a very real systemic issue. So is there still hope for the future when it comes to this problem? Absolutely. I've been given a lot of hope in the last two years by learning of all of the recognition that's coming to the issue, the recognition that environmental justice is not just what it sounds like. It's not just let's create more parks and beaches and let's get people outside and moving and exercise. It's not just that. It's it's housing justice. It's social justice. It's racial justice. It is everything rolled into one. And the recognition of that intersectionality and the recognition that the solutions are not a one-all be-all. It's looking at the system as a whole. It's systems thinking, forward thinking, progressive thinking, and, and the recognition that that's what we need 
Um, I have a lot of hope for the future. I think the recognition is getting there. I think there's a revolution, a legal revolution happening, cultural revolution happening. And I hope to incite, <laughs> I hope to help incite that, that fire and others to make a difference and to, you know, have your voice be heard, you know, what's important to you and how do you want to see your community change for the better? And I think by knowing those things and being involved in the conversation um, and making yourself heard, that's all you can do and you should. So I have a lot of hope for the future. You know, I think federally things are going in the right direction. I think the conversations that need to happen are happening. Are they happening the best way? <laughs> Probably not. Are they happening the safest way? I don't know. But I think if as long as we're all going in with a learning mindset um, and we're not afraid to fail, I think that's that's when change happens. So I'm very hopeful for the future. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and shining a light on this important issue. Thank you so much for having me. Sarah Martinez wrote the article, Racism in the Water, Access for All in Outdoor Recreation. She's also a former water policy specialist at UWM Center for Water Policy. She spoke with Lake Effects expert Nunez. In about 10 minutes, we'll get a behind-the-scenes look at how Flight for Life keeps the community safe. But first, we'll get ice safety tips after this deep freeze we've had this week. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Temperatures have been below freezing all week and below zero at some points. For some, that's meant staying inside, but for some Wisconsinites, that opens up the opportunity for some winter recreation, like ice skating or ice fishing. Jason Roberts is a recreation warden for the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. He joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers with his tips on how to be prepared for the worst when enjoying the best things that ice has to offer. You know, here in Wisconsin and anywhere in the upper Midwest here, um, we deal with ice. And there's a lot of fun things you can do out on the ice and can be a whole lot of fun. The challenge always comes into play is whether or not the ice is safe. And to answer your question, is ice ever safe? Inherently, you're standing on water. So no, it's not always safe and it can't always be safe, but there are certain conditions and there are times in which people can safely recreate. There's always a risk associated with going out onto frozen water. But for the most part, if you use good common sense and you take some precautionary measures, bring along appropriate safety tools, you can be safe out there and have a great time. Let's look into some of this kind of common sense knowledge. When we're thinking about ice, of course, we're talking about a lot of different types of bodies of water. There, there's lakes in Wisconsin, there's rivers, there's ponds. Are there any types of water that you really shouldn't walk on? Sure, yeah. Uh, most people, when they're out recreating, tend to go on to our inland bodies of water, our lakes. And even though lakes are a solid block of water, there are often are inlets and outlets where water moves in and moves out of these lake bodies. Those areas in particular are places you should stay away from. So 
my recommendation is when it comes to rivers and it comes to inlets and outlets of inland water bodies, inland lakes, those are areas you should stay away from. Whenever you have water moving underneath ice, it compromises the ice itself and you can have problems. Wherever water levels can change, you get that air gap between the water level and the actual ice, you get buckling, you get cracks in the ice, and that's where things get a little sketchy as far as walking on top of it. Well, and that gets to another question that I have. I grew up on Geneva Lake down in Lake Geneva, and one of the big concerns that we always had was heating and cooling. You know, we'd have like a couple weeks where it got above freezing, and then it would go back below and back above. How does that impact the integrity of the ice? Sure. In the southern part of the state, we get a lot of these warm 40-degree days where on occasion you'll get a bit of rain. There's a couple of common things that you can see and notice about the ice that would give you the sense that maybe you should stay away from it. Seeing water on top of the ice, seeing a different color of ice, like what we call black ice, a darker ice, that's ice that indicates it's getting to the point where the water's level is getting closer to the surface you can see. So as the ice gets darker, the snow starts to disappear, and you see standing water, those are all indications that things can be a little dicey out there. Whenever you have that heating and cooling with the ice, you compromise the safety of that ice because you get an effect. You get a what they call a honeycombing effect with the thawing and refreezing. Whereas you may see or drill down or use a spud bar and see, hey, there's eight inches of ice, that's plenty to walk on. But once that ice has been compromised with that thawing and refreezing, you get that honeycomb effect, which it may appear to be eight inches, but in reality, it doesn't have the structural integrity to hold people and especially not recreational vehicles or motor vehicles themselves. When we're talking about ice safety, We're also talking about inherently the dangers that ice presents. What are the biggest dangers that can happen when you're on the ice? The obvious one is certainly falling through, but even beyond that, just slipping and falling is a big issue. One of the top things that uh, wardens get injured, you know, wardens, people going out, checking fishing licenses, simply slipping on ice. For that reason, we've implemented a policy where we utilize uh, the creeper system, which is basically a, a spike that you put on your shoe. You can buy them. Some people used to make them in the old days, but nowadays everyone just straps them on their feet. Um, it's a way of keeping you upright uh, in those slippery conditions. The bigger concern, of course, is what I mentioned, alluded to earlier, which is falling through the ice. And I think if, if that scenario develops, having the proper gear along with you or having people with you to both help you get out or also if you're alone to self-rescue yourself is really key to staying safe out there. And there are numerous products out there that are available to our recreating public. And it's just a question of whether you want to invest in those life-saving measures. And to me, it's a no-brainer. Many of the ice fishing suits that they make nowadays, the snowmobiling suits that they make nowadays all have built-in flotation systems. They have some sort of padding that uh, will help keep the person afloat because that really is key. If you do fall in the water, just be aware that there is going to be that cold shock response that's just normal. You're going to lose your breath a bit. But if you calm down and give yourself 30 seconds, for the most part, you should be able to get yourself out if, in fact, you're wearing a jacket that provides some flotation. And also if you have some rescue pegs or rescue sticks, which are basically just these little pegs that you wear around your neck or keep in your pocket. If you're able to get to them, if you fall in the water, you can actually utilize them to pull yourself up onto the ice. 
because without them, it's very challenging. It's very difficult. We've ran scenarios where we've gone in with some wetsuits and boy, it's really difficult to get out if you don't have some means of holding on to the ice, which is going to be wet and cold. And these spikes actually allow you to slide up kind of like a sea otter getting on top of the ice. As we're thinking about the different supplies and the different things that we need to prepare for being on the ice, you mentioned a suit that can be submerged in water and and still keep you warm, spikes to help you get out of the ice. What are some other supplies that you should always be carrying with you? Sure. I'm a big advocate if you're going to be out there on a lake, especially ice fishermen, if you're going to be out there on the lake, to bring a uh, boat seat cushion, which actually is a U.S. Coast Guard approved flotation system. It's a what they call a type four. Everyone thinks of it as the square boat cushion that you sit on just to be more comfortable. And I am a big advocate of that, to have that out there. It's much more comfortable to sit in a seat on the bucket with this cushion, but it also provides an important rescue mechanism if in fact you do go in. Keeping yourself from drowning is really the key. And that sounds silly to say, don't drown if you fall through the water, but really when you fall in the water, you're so uh, set on getting out. When in reality, you have time. You just, you gotta focus on your swimming. You gotta focus on staying above the water level. And that's really key. And if you have that boat seat cushion, you can stay above water and hopefully you can either have people there available to you to help you get out or uh, able to get to your phone and, and make a call. Another big piece of equipment that you can carry that people don't often think of is is a rescue bag. A simple rescue rope that you can throw to somebody is really key to get yourself out or to get some a family member or a fellow fisherman uh, that's out in the ice that happens to fall through. The key is not to become a victim yourself and not rushing to be the hero by jumping in the water to rescue somebody, but rather providing something for them to get themselves out, which is a rope, something they can reach for. Well... Jason, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing these tips. Thank you for having me. Jason Roberts is a recreation warden for the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, and he spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers in 2021. Flight for life keeps the community safe. People can be critically injured in a split second, whether it's a car accident, a gunshot wound, or any other significant trauma. The job of Flight for Life is to get you somewhere that can save you, and fast. It's a medical transport unit that takes patients by helicopter to hospital emergency rooms, including Freightert, which is Milwaukee's level one trauma care center. Flight for Life is on call 24-7, 365 days a year so there's a lot of preparation and coordination involved. WUWM's Mayan Silver learns about the program from Scott Rinzel, its market development manager. There's two very distinct types of calls, right? There's trauma calls, there's scene calls, where we're actually responding, you know, working with, with uh, local fire departments, actually responding kind of in the field. And then there's also inter-facility calls, right, where we're going to um, to, to hospitals and actually, and actually taking patients from that controlled setting to the, the freighters, the St. Luke's, the larger type of facilities in the city. Also, you know, Madison, UW, there, there are a whole bunch of different hospitals that we, that we actually go to. When you're picking someone up from a scene, where on earth does the helicopter stop? 
So that's actually a, a really big part of what I do is being the kind of the, the account manager for Flight for Life is working with the local fire departments. We conduct what we call landing zone trainings. We try and get to each one of our departments that we work with every two years. That's the goal. And what we actually do is we'll actually go on site to these departments. We have a we have a, a presentation that myself or another one of my my colleagues will conduct. Um, it goes over, you know, the you know, really the the kind of nuts to bolts of what flight for life is, how we do it, who we are and what they can expect when they're when they're calling a flight for life aircraft to that scene. So, you know, things like, you know, the, the, the dimensions that the landing zone has to be proper radio communications, um, you know, how that how that that whole process works. That's really what we train and that's really what we, we work with. So when we are in, you know, in, in the midst of, of, a, of a chaotic emergent situation, right, that training kind of kicks in and everyone knows kind of what to expect and, and then what to happen so we can provide a safe outcome, not only for our, our crew, but for that patient as well. But let's say that you had to there was there was a car accident on 35th and National. Who knows? Or, or Farwell and North, or anywhere in the city. Where would the helicopter stop? Would you find the closest hospital nearby, and then how would you get to the people? So we actually find that the, the majority of, of the accidents in the in the scene calls that we're going to are, are kind of outside the city, right? Because you know, and because really the where where flight where flight becomes effective is when you know. The or really effective, excuse me, is when um, it's the ambulance ride to the facility that is going to be prohibitive for that patient, right? So if let's say we're out, in, let's say we're out in, I'll, I'll just use use Burlington as an example, right? For the Burlington Fire Department to take that patient all the way down to Freighter or, or private ambulance to take that that patient to to Freighter Hospital, the length of time that that transport's going to take is going to it has the potential to cause potentially negative outcomes for that patient. So that's where the aircraft really kind of shines is where we can come in, get that patient, get them moving to that higher level care center, and, and provide that that patient with with a, a better outcome. In the example that, that that you described, you know where we're in the city. The length of time that it takes for us to kind of stand up and get to that scene, get the patient loaded, you know, have a proper landing zone set up, it really just, you know, in, in those scenarios, it really makes more sense sometimes for that for the fire department or the or the, the, the transporting unit just to take that patient directly to the hospital because it's going to be a much faster turn time, if you will. I see. And are you doing a lot of rural calls? What geographic area do you focus on? We are southeast Wisconsin, so I mean, down to the the Illinois border, um, up to you know Sheboygan area um, out west. We 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 travel, you know, we we go, you know, nor normal customers are you know Beaver Dam, Watertown, Fort Atkinson, kind of to the west, then north as far as Sheboygan. We actually are are very lucky. We we work with with some of the specialty teams for freighter. And we actually do some longer distance. We actually do some some transports with them. So some some calls, like with, for example, the ECMO team will, will take us up to um, like Marinette, up to north, northern Michigan, things like that. So there are some some you know one-offs, but our primary service area is southeast Wisconsin. So I'm actually someone whose life was saved by Flight for Life, or helped be saved by Flight for Life uh, in 2004. I was awakened in the middle of the night with an aortic dissection. It's when there's a tear in your aorta, and I had like paralysis from the waist down. I was at St. Mary's in Ozaki, and then Flight for Life took me to Freighter Hospital. So, how does it feel to be a service, like part of a service that's helping save lives like that? And do you hear from a lot of people that have used the service? Oh, I mean, you that's in 
first of all, I'm I'm very glad that we were able to you know have have an impact and 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 help you. That's 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 exactly why I think the the, the majority of the people at this organization that's kind of their that's kind of their why, if you will, right? We walk kind of a fine line, right? We don't you know we understand that that we're involved in some very traumatic you know um, scenarios and and we're involved in very dark times in these people's lives. So you know if if patients do you know reach out and 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 express an interest to, to come and you know attempt to meet their to meet the 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 uh, crew who was involved involved in their call or come see the aircraft or even just come tour the base. Um, we, we absolutely try and accommodate that. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's one young lady specifically that I can, that I can think of immediately. Um, she, she reached out, um, she was, she's in her mid twenties, you know, at a, 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 um, a car accident, uh, was, and, and ended up being flown, uh, had some, had some, some, some lasting effects, but, you know, it's still, you know, she's, she's, you know, incredibly positive woman. She's, she's really just a ball, a ball of positive energy. And she asked to kind of come reach out and, um, two of the crew members who were, um, actually involved, involved in, in, in her, um, in her call were, were retired. Um, and so one lives up in Door County, the other works for the FAA. Um, and, uh, so they actually, we actually were able to, to, to reach out to them and they were willing to come back. You know, you, I mean, they don't, they, they no longer work for the organization, but it still, it meant so much to them. They were, they came back. We had a, you know, kind of a, a, a nice little reception for her where she was able to kind of see the aircraft. And it was, it was really a positive, it was really a great thing for her and her family. And I think, you know, to your point, it just really, it just really kind of reaffirms why we do what we do and kind of what our purpose is. I think, I mean, and again, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a crew member. I'm not, I'm not, you know, one of the, one of the people flying in the air. Aircraft, but um, I, I think I, I, I feel pretty confident speaking for those folks when, when I say that. So, I mean, clearly most people, you mentioned it's a very dark time for people when they're on Flight for Life, and it's a dark time for their families, but who are the people behind the scenes, you know, flying the helicopters, providing the medical care? All, can you can you unpack a little bit of, of who those people are and how they're trained and those Absolutely. types of things? Absolutely. So so a, a flight for life crew consists of our, our pilot, our medic, and our, our I'm sorry, our flight our flight paramedic and our flight nurse. Um, that's that's a that's kind of our, our typical setup. Um, it, we we can operate in a in a flight paramedic flight paramedic model or a flight nurse flight nurse model. It just kind of changes some of the, of the different calls that you know, that, that we can do. Um, but that's your typical flight crew. Um, and then at each base, so our, our Hartford and our Burlington base, there are two mechanics assigned to each aircraft. So they are responsible for, you know, they're responsible for the aircraft. We have a fantastic maintenance crew. They are, they are incredible. Chris Eels are, uh, are, are one of our mechanics, one national mechanic of the, of the year. Um, he's, he is a, he's a great asset. We are, we are extremely fortunate to have him and the rest of our mechanic staff. Um, and then kind of more behind the scenes, we do have some auxiliary staff like myself. Um, you know, we, we have some um, administrative assistants, comm center directors, things like that. Um, you know, medical directors, our executive director. And then we also actually have, we're, we're very fortunate to have a local comm center uh, here in Waukesha. So we have, we have uh, communication specialists who are uh, on site 24 seven and they are, they are locally dispatching our, our aircraft. So they are kind of here on site. Those are kind of the, uh, the behind the scenes folks, if you will, that are not actively engaged with the aircraft. So this is apparent to anyone who watched MASH when they were growing up. Sure. Um, basically, just that in the Korean and Vietnam wars, people finally started to realize how valuable helicopters could be for medical evacuation, but it mm -hmm. was for military medical evacuation. The first flight for life for civilians in the U.S. started in 1972 in Colorado. Do you know how it got to Wisconsin? 
Yeah, so I, I don't know. I don't know the exact origin. I do know that there's again. I, I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering this story, so I, I apologize. It's been passed down, you know, through you know from person to person. But I know that we did reach out and ask if we could utilize their namesake because we we were starting the program. I, our, our first flight was completed in 1984, um, so we did ask them to to use that namesake. They said yes, um, and then and then. After us, I think they, they kind of shut down use of that. So we are the only two, you know, flight flight for life programs, if you will, um, that I'm aware you of. You in Colorado. Correct. And then and then obviously there are other there are, are other providers all, all over the country, just but just with that specific namesake. It's 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 us and them. So the other providers pretty much in every state then, right? Or every area? Oh yes, yeah. There there are aircraft. There are, you know, for profit, not for profit aircraft all over the country, numerous you know, everywhere. Is Flight for Life nonprofit? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, we, we are a not, not, not-for-profit organization. Yeah, absolutely. Gotcha, okay. Scott Rinzel of Flight for Life, thanks for joining me on Lake Effect. I appreciate you very much. Thank you. Scott Rinzel is the Market Development Manager for Flight for Life. He spoke with WUWM's Mayan Silver. The DOT is doing away with their clever road signs. We'll meet the person behind them next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. You know those clever signs you see along the highways that often have a silly pun or a dad joke to remind people to stay safe on the roads? Well, they'll soon be a thing of the past. The U.S. Department of Transportation is banning them in Wisconsin and nationwide starting in 2026 because they could be a distraction or misunderstood by drivers. In 2021, a listener asked us about who's responsible for coming up with what's on the signs, and Lake Effect's Joy Powers looked into that for Bubbler Talk. Bubbler Talk, quenching Milwaukee's thirst for knowledge. When you're driving to work, there's nothing worse than seeing a traffic sign that shows delays ahead. But if you're like firefighter Drew Schuster, there is one thing you look forward to seeing, the witty safety messages. Well, I travel to and from Mequon and Germantown probably at least five or six times a week to Milwaukee. So I pass by these signs all the time. Schuster describes them as dad jokes, and you might be familiar with some of them, like camp in the woods, not the left lane, or life is fragile, slow down. Sometimes they're tied to holidays or they reference pop culture. All of these messages come from the same place the Wisconsin Department of Transportation, and more specifically, its Traffic Management Center. The center is responsible for, well, managing traffic. And they do this using a lot of different tools, like roadway sensors, cameras on the highway, and these digital traffic boards, also known as dynamic message signs. The signs offer a lot of different information to drivers throughout Wisconsin, including travel times and weather advisories. They're also a prime spot to include these safety reminders. And over the past year, you may have noticed an influx in these snappy traffic messages. That's thanks to John Riemann. He's the man behind the screens writing and editing these messages. 
I started saying, we could be doing more. We can certainly be getting more creative with them, doing them more often and all of that. So now we're up to somewhere, I like to balance it around 20 to 22 days. Um, I don't want it to be something where there's a message every day, but I also want it to be where, you know, we weren't running the same message for a week at a time or a month at a time. It should be noted that this is just a small part of his job. As Raymond is quick to point out, he's a communications manager. He doesn't spend his whole day writing these messages. And he also doesn't actually come up with all of them by himself. He relies on a team of people from around the state that include folks from law enforcement, traffic engineers, and safety engineers, the same people who interact with the traffic management center on a daily basis. There's a hodgepodge of emails and phone calls suggesting different messages for the monthly calendar. And coming up with them is both an art and a science. It can be a challenge because we are dealing with a very finite number of characters. I always like to say it's worse than Twitter. You know, where you get the 240 characters, this is three lines of 18 characters. So you're pretty limited as to trying to get a, you know, a message out in a very succinct manner. Wisconsin isn't the only state that's trying to zhuzh up its safety reminders, but it does stand out among the crowd, in part due to the volume of messages each month. I did actually hear from a colleague in another state, and I won't, won't call him out, but when we asked, oh, what's your frequency of change on it, the email that I got back was something to the effect of, well, we've had the same message up for about six months now. Many states play on local cliches. Here that means things like, make it to deer camp, drive sober. In other states like Louisiana, Raymond says they get a little bit more risque with phrases like, slow the flock down. And you might be asking yourself, at what point are these messages less about safety and more about entertainment? In Louisiana, it seems their racy messages are having a real impact. They did a study on some of the messages that they had on one of their causeway bridges, and they did actually notice a reduction in crashes that were happening because they were reminding people, uh, you know, to slow down and don't tailgate and, and all that. But let's get back to Schuster's core question about Riemann. I wanted to know, is it in fact, a dad that's writing these, because who else can come up with that kind of humor? The answer is yes. Riemann does happen to be a father, which adds to his dad joke credentials. But his son William is just two years old, and Riemann says he's really just approaching that first level of dad joke punnetry. Regardless of his dad credentials, Schuster says he's still impressed with Riemann's work. And whether or not you enjoy these messages, Riemann says that if it just makes you think about driving safely, it's all worth it. For Bubbler Talk, I'm Joy Powers. And that's Like Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers, Sam Woods, and Excret Nunez join me in producing Like Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Chuck Kornbach, Susan Bentz, and Mayan Silver from the WUWM News team this week. Jason Reeve is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Lara Navarro-Villegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. Join us again on Monday at noon for the latest on the ongoing legal battles surrounding redistricting in Wisconsin. Plus, we'll learn about the restoration and installation of a historic pipe organ at the Oriental Theater here in Milwaukee. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, you can download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.